Hi, and welcome to Bread. Our current series is on the book of Genesis. It's uh, going back to the start, not because that's where we're heading, but it is where we've come from, spiritually and cosmically, if not historically. The Bible is clear. We've left Eden. We're not going back. Instead, we're heading for heaven, which is not some fluffy, cloud, harp playing, white sheet wearing place up in the sky. It's a glorious city of wonder and abundance and redemption here on earth and forever into eternity. Heaven is not Eden, but it does share many of its defining characteristics. So we're going back to the start, not to return, but to see where we've come from so that we might know better where we're going and how to get there. Enjoy. Um, welcome, everyone. Uh, especially warm welcome if uh, you're visiting us, checking us out. It's great to have you with us. A, a few weeks ago, we did a whole series on Revelation um, and particularly sort of uh, looking at the fact that the rapture doesn't exist in the Bible at all and that we don't actually believe it happens. But when we started the service with three people, I did begin to think maybe uh, I'm not actually right about that and everyone has been raptured. So well done for being here um, on a three-day weekend and Father's Day. It's lovely to have you with us. Um, it's all good. Um, anyway, back to the point. This is the final talk uh, on our series in the first few chapters of Genesis. Now, as we've said before, we are not going back to Eden the story of the Bible is not going back to Eden. It's about heaven coming here. And that's where we're headed. Heaven is already here, thanks to Jesus, in part. So we experience the love of God. We experience the fruit of his spirit. We experience healing, physical, emotional, spiritual. We experience all the signs of his kingdom now, in part. But we are also waiting for heaven to be fully realized where everything will be made new. There will be no more sickness, no more death. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. We will live forever. That's where we're going. We're not going back to Eden. But in order to know where we're going, it's important to see where we've come from. Hence, going back to the start with Genesis. So, as this is the end of the series, let me do a quick recap on where um, we've been. Humanity was created as the pinnacle of God's creation. This whole glorious universe we see is really for us. We are the height of what God wanted to create. But we weren't created as God's sort of playthings. He was a bit bored. He was bored with the angels, so he decided to create humanity so he could play around with us for a bit. And we're not created as his subjects for us to just do his bidding wherever he wants and get into trouble if we don't do what he's asked us to do. Rather, what the beginning of Genesis says is you, me, we were all created as God's idol. The reason God says in his commandments, you must not have any idols, is because, not that we don't have them, but because we already are them. We are his image. God's vice regents on earth. We were created like him, sharing in something of his divinity, being like him, and tasked to co-create with him, to go out beyond the walls of Eden, beyond the walls, beyond the boundaries of Eden, into the chaos, and create with him, to bring order to chaos. And like him, we are Aram, 
which is a Hebrew word meaning um, wise. We are not naive or stupid. Adam and Eve were not naive or stupid. They were wise. They understood the difference between good and evil. They were able to name the animals. They knew, Adam knew that uh, there was no animal fit for him as a companion. And when he saw Eve, she, he knew that he, she was good. So we weren't stupid. We understood the difference between good and evil. And we shared with God's divinity. So when it comes to the fall, the issue is not so much disobedience, like we were naughty little children, although, of course, that's in there, the disobedience part, and it's not like we're prideful. Rather, what we are grasping at is something that we already have, but we are grasping at it without God. We are choosing independence. We eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we already had it but we want it independent of God. And so, everything falls apart as a result of this. What they should have said to that stupid little snake was, be quiet, I'm subduing you as I am commanded to. You are lesser than me, and I will bring order to you. I will bring um, beauty to you. Do not be an agent of chaos. But rather than that, rather than listen to the creator, they listen to the creation. And the consequence is a loss of identity, fundamentally. We lose who we are. God's vice regents on earth, his image idol. We lose our status. And we lose our vocation of co-creation with him. As Hannah was talking about last week, the consequences are a indemnity between the sexes, between humanity and creation, and between humanity and God. Oneness is lost. As I said a couple of weeks ago, sin is not just like a rebellion against God. It is always also a dislocation from him, and not just that, but a self-denigration. We lose a little bit of ourselves. A little bit of us dies each time. We go from being these open, generous, outward people of, Gen of Genesis 1, ready to partner with God and make the world a beautiful, wonderful, glorious place, and we become self-obsessed. We become curved in on ourselves. Incubatus in se is the Latin term. I know you wanted some Latin. Don't worry. There it is. Everything is about self and the terror that it brings. So at the end of chapter 3, verse 22, this is what God decrees. And the Lord said... The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. It's not that we weren't already. It's that we've chosen it without him. He must not be allowed, therefore, to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken. The consequences are catastrophic. And it must be that we have what we have now chosen. We were people of the tree of life, the royal, immortal, godlike people. But what we chose was knowledge of good and evil for ourselves. And the whole of human history has been about humans deciding what is right and good and not always making a very good job of it, have we? And so the consequences have to be, well, we cannot have immortality as well. How would that end up? 
all the people who've ever lived trying to organize society, just living on forever and ever and ever and ever. So God must restrict us from what we choose no longer to be. And we cannot choose to have what we've left behind. So there we have it. All happy good news. That is Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Now let's move on to chapter 4. And if you thought those were sketchy, just you wait. This is life outside Eton and the first murder. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. <laughs> Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So, What's the difference between Cain and Abel? The truth is, they are both the same. Is Abel some sort of perfect child who goes to church and reads his Bible and says his prayers and is a good Christian boy? And is Cain some sort of rebellious, evil hater of God who drives a motorbike and wears a leather jacket and smokes cigarettes and for some reason, in my imagination, lives in 1950s suburban America? No, they are both the same. They're both trying to please God. They both believe in him. They both want to live for him. They both bring offerings to him. Often it's depicted like good Abel, bad Cain, but that's just not what the text says. And so the reason for why God doesn't favor Cain's offering but does favor Abel's offering is at this point unclear. We will come back to it in a minute, but at this point it's unclear. The text presents it as kind of random. This is, though, I think, quite deliberate. Because the point is ultimately not that Cain may have done something wrong, and it's definitely not the point that God is some sort of deliberate 
arbitrary, uh, I'll do whatever I like just to mess with people's minds. After all, there is no damage done between the relationship between God and Cain. They still speak. They're still close to one another. The point of the story is, what is Cain going to do with the disappointment? And the truth is, isn't it, that actually the world is random. The world isn't always controlled. It's not always predictable. Often things happen that shouldn't happen, and often things that don't happen do happen. That sort of makes sense. Just look at um, the entertainment industry. Do the most talented, hardest working people get the breaks? Yes, they do. <laughs> you can't say that. <laughs> no, they don't. Sometimes, but sometimes not. I do actually know a couple of people who, by any metric possible, they are more talented in their industry, more hardworking, produce better content than 99% of the other people working there. By any metric, I'm not just being because they're my friends. It's objective, <laughs> as much as these things can be. But they haven't enjoyed the success or the fame that perhaps other people have done. This is, after all, the world in which we live where a vlogger can get 11 million views on TikTok by crashing his Tesla and then getting all the cash and all the notoriety that he wants from it, and then admitting that actually it wasn't him, it wasn't his Tesla or anything like that, but he can still have all the benefits of it because the world is not fair. We don't all get what we deserve. And the point of Cain's story is not that things aren't fair. They aren't. It's what we do when things aren't fair. Because there's always a temptation when we believe that the world is against us, to go towards feelings of self-preservation, self-pity, self. Verse 7, God says, sin is crouching at your door. Nothing's happened yet. He's angry, but nothing's happened yet. But sin is crouching at your door like a coiled snake. It's right there, Cain. Now, this is in part a, a direct rebuttal of the fall of, um, sorry, a direct retelling of the fall of Adam and Eve. And it's a rebuttal of the idea that some people are more susceptible to sin than others. Let me just make this completely clear. Eve did not sin because she's a woman, okay? Because she's weak and a woman, and it was all her fault. That's not the case. It could have been Adam. It just happened to be Eve. And here, what we have is Cain, who is the good, blue-eyed, firstborn son, the one who should succeed, not Abel, the secondborn. It's Cain is the one who is susceptible to sin, because we all are. And this is the point. What God is saying is that sin always hides in the shadows. And it hides for all of us. But it doesn't stay there. Just like the snake of chapter 3, it has agency and it has power. And at any moment, it could uncoil itself and get you. It can take over you. I know this is a sort of unpleasant subject, and it's not what you came to church for. But do you know your crouching sins, the ones hiding in the shadows ready to get you? I'm not unfriendly, I'm just focused. I'm not tight, I'm just very careful with money. I'm not bitchy, I'm just exposing the truth. 
and it is my right. I'm not bitter against the opposite sex, I'm just experiencing righteous moral outrage. As I've um, gone on through life, I've realized that we actually don't tend to be chaotic and sort of all-encompassing in the sins that actually uh, affect us um, the most, most regularly. It's not like today I'm going to be susceptible to a huge amount of lust, and then tomorrow it's going to be greed, and then on Tuesday, murder. <laughs> actually, what I've noticed as I've gone on through life is that we tend to be pretty narrow in our focus. There's a famous book by um, Richard Forster, Money, Sex, and Power, which is the sort of three big things that he says most people are susceptible to. I'll be totally honest with you. Power has never interested me. That's why I lead a church. No, no interest in power whatsoever. Power and influence, nothing. The other two, not so much. Um, an old pastor friend of mine uh, used to say that when we, when we speak things out in the open, what we do is we experience God's fresh air just blowing all around us. And it just takes the stench, the stench, the stench away from it. It takes away some of uh, the power of it. So if you don't mind... I'm just going to confess some sins. Oh gosh, Hannah says. Um, I hope you don't mind. What I increasingly struggle with is um, actually how to process anger in a healthy way. I, um, I know I appear really laid back. I am. 99% of the time, the most laid-back person ever. On my final school report, they said, if Edward, and they called me Edward, if Edward was any more laid-back, he would be horizontal. <laughs> um, but what I have found, and partly because um, negative emotions like anger were never allowed to be really expressed growing up, so I didn't have them. And then I met Hannah, and all emotions are allowed to be expressed all the time. It's wonderful. But what I realized was I'd never actually learned how to do this properly. And so what happens is, now and again, it just sparks out of nowhere. And it's not very healthy. And it gets directed at the people I love the most. Now, on one level, this is a sort of backhanded compliment. I feel safe enough to express the negative emotions to those people. But it's not a very nice compliment, is it? But that's what I'm saying. So, I'm just letting God's fresh air blow around my crap. Anger's my problem. And I know that it sort of sits there in the shadows, ready to get me. Take courage. Give it to Jesus. Speak it out to him. You know, we can confess things to other people, but it's not half as important as confessing them to the one who can actually forgive them. So tell him. He already knows about it. But don't be so naive or so proud as to think you are immune. These things aren't sitting there ready to get you. Sin is real. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. 
I have an uh, old friend who was um, sort of this old pastor of the church I worked for in London. He's called Barry. He's about this high. He looks like Papa Smurf. He has a white beard, and he's from New Zealand. Don't hold that against him. Now, Papa Smurf, Barry, um, I first came across him because we were doing a conference, a kind of big church conference, and I was like an um, intern at the time, and my job was to record the seminar that he and his wife were doing. They were in their like, late 60s, early 70s. And so I, sh I shouldn't have been there, but I was there recording it. And it was a parenting seminar, and I was like 25 and wasn't married and didn't have kids. So I, I was thinking, I'm not going to get much out of this. But I immediately liked them because they said, early on in our marriage, we used to get Christmas letters from all our friends. And these Christmas letters used to tell us how wonderful all their children were. And they'd go on and on and on about this child's gone to Oxford and this child's won a Nobel Peace Prize and this child's done this and this child's done this. And we would get them and we'd throw them in the fire. And then we decided one year we would write our own. And so Barry and Mary, these two pastors, wrote their own and their, le uh, their letter went like this. Dear everyone, all three of our children are still on drugs. Happy Christmas. And that was it. Anyway, I liked it very much. But Barry told a story of his eldest son, who was an addict, and would spend his teenage and early 20 years, and no one would know where he was. He would go to parties. He would go to raves. He would live in squats. Uh, he was, he, he'd be gone for days on end. But Barry... Barry said to himself and to his son, Jonathan, I am going to pick you up whenever you need, wherever you need it, at whatever time. And he would. He'd drive and he'd pick him up, whatever state he was in, put him in the car and drive him home. And every time he did that, Barry would say, Jonathan, I'm so proud of you. Every single time. Now, Jonathan carried on his lifestyle for a while. One day, he was in the bath at Barry's house, and Barry heard this huge kind of crashing around in the bath. And he thought, oh my goodness, maybe he's um, uh, having an overdose. What's going on? I don't know. Literally broke down the door. Walked in, and Jonathan's there, totally in his right mind, going, this is the most amazing thing ever. The Holy Spirit has met me. I've seen Jesus. I'm going to totally change my life. I'm going to give myself to this. This is incredible. I have like, a truly dramatic conversion experience just sitting in his bath, not even expecting it. What he said, he's now a church leader in London. What he said was, I don't remember that much about my childhood, but what I remember was my dad's words every single time to me, saying, I'm so proud of you. And I knew that if he could say that, Perhaps God could say that about me too. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. And God here gently and compassionately initiates with Cain. He comes to Cain and no one has asked him to. No one has called. No one said there's an emergency. God is just there in the midst of it. He doesn't go after the murder he goes, before anything's gone wrong, policemen turn up after the crime has been committed. But God is not a cosmic policeman. 
he turns up before anything's gone wrong at all. Do you understand why he's there? He's not up in heaven tapping his foot saying, I told you so. This was always going to happen. Why did you do it? He's there trying to help Cain see that there is hope, that he doesn't have to go down this path. He's saying to Cain, let me tell you what is going on here with you. And if I may, let, let me try and tell us what's going on here. Consider the significance of names in the Bible. There's lots of people who change their names, all for significant reason. Do you know what Cain means? Cain means productive and useful. Do you know what Abel means? Abel means worthless and a nobody. These are their names. It is by no accident that these are what their sons are called. And the only possible answer is that their parents really loved Cain and they weren't too fussed about Abel. Cain is the winner. Eve, even in the text, says she's so happy that she's given birth to Cain and then she also had Abel. So why then would Cain be unhappy when his brother Abel, the nobody, the loser, is praised by the God of the whole universe? Well, surely only because Cain's whole identity is constructed in relation to Abel. And Cain is defined as being the better son. He is worthy from the beginning. And so when God is pleased with Abel, the loser, Cain experiences what he's never experienced before, that Abel is getting favor, possibly for the first time in his life. And Cain's whole identity is crushed because if you are defined in relation to someone else and then that whole system gets turned up on its head, what does that make of your identity? Uh, Miroslav Volf, uh, the thinker and theologian, said this, first came envy. Cain was angry because Abel, who is literally a nobody, is regarded. And Cain, who is clearly a somebody, is disregarded. His identity is, I am better than my brother. And so when God favors Abel, Cain either has to reject his whole identity, his whole source of being, who he sees himself as, and all the terror that that would in involve, or he has to reject Abel and he has to reject God. So the power of sin does not rest on some sort of irrepressible urge towards violence, but rather it rests on something that we all have. This perverted self in us that insists on maintaining some sort of sense of our own identity, one that we have created. It's built on our identity outside of God. It's you, me, whoever we are saying, I'm living up to what my parents wanted me to be. It's I am living up to what this city wants me to be. What social media, what friends, what I have decided I am. That's where it festers. This is the whole heart of Adam and Eve's rebellion. 
Not what God says we are and we actually are, but what we say we are. And when God shows that he has a completely different value system, Cain goes completely crazy. The whole thing falls apart. Do you see how fragile his identity is? It really does not take much. The first only instance of not having everyone tell you, you're amazing. But that fragility is something that we are all susceptible of. But by contrast, God's love, his grace, is utterly entirely 100% secure. So to end, how could we be a bit more able and a bit less Cain? I said earlier that the text doesn't make it clear why Abel's offering was accepted and Cain's wasn't. And that text is more concerned with how Cain responds. Um, But in the light of the New Testament, in the light of Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews does shed some light on the difference between these two offerings. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. It is not a question of whether they believed in God. They did both believe in God. It's not a question of whether they wanted to please God. They both did want to please God. It's a question of faith. Faith in the grace of God. Faith as a response to what God has already done. Abel's sacrifice was in response to the promise of God that he would be with them. That despite everything that had gone on with their parents, God would still be true. He believed in the goodness of God. The only other way to sacrifice is not as a response, but as a sort of initiation, which is what Cain does. I want you, God, to do something for me, so I am going to do this for you. Cain stands for all the self-related religious attitudes that anyone can have towards God. Cain is those religious authorities nailing Jesus to the tree. He is you and me gambling over his clothes, mocking him as he carries our cross. But here's where everything changes. We have a different Abel. In God's cursing of the snake at the end of chapter 3, he makes this prophecy. He says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Since Eden there has been a cosmic battle, a battle between the spiritual offsprings of the snake, the canes of this world, the animalistic, the violent, the self-serving, the independent, and the offspring of Eve. Creation has groaned and waited for someone from Eve's line, a son of man, to crush the snake's head once and for all. In Daniel 7, there is this prophecy about one like the Son of Man, one from Eve's line, who will arise, who will defeat the beasts, the evil, the despotic, the violent, 
who will subdue and, for the first time since creation, have dominion over the whole earth. And even though he is human-born, this Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the Father and be worshipped like the God he is. It's this figure, ever since Eden, that creation is waiting for. And throughout the Gospels, do you know what Jesus' favorite self-designation is? Son of Man. I'm the one. The one we have all been waiting for. And as we and those who are in that crowd cause untold violence on his body, Jesus declares it's finished. The snake's head has been crushed. And from the cross, he cries out to all humanity, past, present, and future, to you and me, Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Our response is always to this grace, and that is what we see in Abel's sacrifice. I am responding to what you have already done. Now let me live not as the animalistic child of the snake, but as one like you, the son of Adam, the son of man, the son of Eve, who has authority to bring order and beauty to this world, to live as people of order and beauty in our own lives, and to not give in to those powers behind us, crouching behind, ready to uncoil and get us. Let me end with this. Every single person here will have been labeled in different ways. You will have been labeled by the people who had most influence over your life. Some of those labels will be hugely positive. They will be ones that help you walk with your head held high because they mean so much. But some of them will have actually been a weight on your shoulders that mean you define yourself in respect of other people, other influences. And they need to go. They need to go. Can I just read you a story? This is from um, a Freakonomics book from a few years ago. I'm sure you all, some of you all read it. Um, in 1958, a New York City man called Robert Lane decided to call his baby son Winner. The Lanes, who lived in a housing project in Harlem, already had several children, each with a pretty normal name. But this boy, Robert Lane, had a special feeling about this one. Winner Lane. How could he fail with a name like that? Three years later, the Lanes had their seventh and final child, another baby boy. For reasons that no one can quite pin down, Robert decided to name this boy Loser. First a winner, and now a loser. This is completely true. But if winner lane could hardly be expected to fail, could loser lane possibly ever succeed? The reality is, winner lane actually got caught up in crime and drugs and spent time in and out of prison for most of his life. Loser lane, though, did succeed. He went to prep school, on a scholarship, 
He graduated from Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. He joined the NYPD, and this was his mother's greatest desire, long-time wish for him. He made detective and eventually sergeant. He never hid his name. Many people were uncomfortable using it, so he says, I have a bunch of names, from Jimmy to James to whatever they want to call me. Once in a while, they throw a French twist on it, Lusier. To his police colleagues, he's always known as Lou. Now, I'm not saying that God was fully involved in that in a way that he can be for anyone. But what I am saying is that the labels that we carry around us do not need to define us because of the power of Jesus' cross to rid them of all their influence over us. That's what he did. He crushed the head of the snake in his hands so that it falls to the floor, lifeless. And instead, what he can say to you is, my idol. That when God looks on you, he sees his likeness, the beauty of his salvation. And what he says to each one of us is there's work to do. Be who I made you to, to be, but also do all the things that only you can do. Often churches can say it's not really what you do, it's who you are, your identity. It's not, it's both. You cannot separate the two. You cannot separate who you are from what you do, and you cannot separate what you do from who you are. When you are fully being yourself, you will inevitably do the things, almost instinctively, almost without thinking about it, that you were created to do. And the more you do the things you were created to do, the more you will be able to actually live into the identity of who you are. And these sin problems fall by the wayside. So, can I encourage you? Receive all the power of the cross for you. The world is completely different now, thanks to Jesus. And he will set you on fire. He will tell you who you are. Just put your life in his hands. He has work for you to do. Amen. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? At the end of every service, we offer an opportunity um, for people to be prayed for. The heart of the New Testament. Don't bother reading it. I'll just let you know all of it. It's just this. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, anyone who's a Christian has the Holy Spirit. He comes and lives inside you. He's never going to leave. He's with you forever. But we leak his presence. We leak all the fruit of his Spirit. We leak his power. And before we know it, we are just running on empty trying to do it ourselves, trying to be a good Christian boy or girl, trying to read our Bible, trying to pray, trying to not do that thing again. What we need is the power of the Spirit to fill us once more. Jesus describes him like streams of living water, welling up to eternal life. He's like a cup that never runs dry. There is always more, always more for you to fill you over and over and over and over again. Otherwise, we are like the engine without the oil in it. It's not going to work properly. So, Take courage, leave your pride on the floor, and open yourself to the power of Jesus to fill you once more. And see what he might do. All those struggling sins over and over and over again, 
in the power of the Spirit, they become nothing. All that worrying about who you are in the power of the Spirit, that falls by the wayside. Allow yourself to be filled. Now, it's a lifelong journey. I'm not saying all of a sudden we're done. There'll be things that we continue to struggle with over and over again. But the more we live in the power of the Spirit, the more we can actually be of use to both ourselves and the people we love and this world that is in desperate need of people like you being full of the Spirit, even you. That was a joke. So would you like to open your hands? Just as a sign of being open, you don't have to do this. There's no power, there's no magic in it. It's just a sort of symbol of being open rather than closed. And you can close your eyes just to to not be distracted. And then why don't you ask the Holy Spirit to meet you? If there's anything on your conscience, just give it to him, leave it in your pew, and don't pick it up again. And let me add my prayers to your prayers. Spirit of the living God, who crushed all evil, death, and sin on the cross, we worship you, we welcome you, and we ask that you would fill these people with your presence right now. Come, Jesus. We love you. feel it important to say this. You will know if this is you. Don't think it's you if you know it's not you. But I think it's important to say this to maybe a couple of people because you are questioning this right now. Let me just tell you. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven, have been forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. Go free. As far as the east is from the west, that is how far he has removed them from you never to return. Let us reason together, says the prophet Isaiah. Though our sins are like scarlet, he has made you as white as snow. So I can see that the Holy Spirit is resting on a number of people. Just let him know that he's welcome. How much more will my Father give the Holy Spirit to everyone who asks, says Jesus in his teaching on prayer. And this will be like the formal close to the service. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and give you his peace this day and forevermore. Happy Father's Day. For any reason... Come to the front. No one's going to ask any prying questions. They're just going to ask God to do what he's already doing, to bless what he's doing, to do more of it.